This is MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Lucy Horton. Today we're going to be discussing mental health treatments and the importance of making sure people are getting the right treatment for them at the right time. I'm joined by Mark Brown, who was diagnosed with bipolar when he was 23 years old. It took years and multiple different treatments before Mark found one that worked for him. His own experience has led him to become a strong advocate for advancing our understanding around mental health and improving treatments and support. And I'm also joined by Zachary Cohen. He's one of our MQ-funded researchers, and he's looking into how we can create better personalised mental health care with an algorithm to predict which treatment will work best for which person. Now, before we begin our discussion on treatments, I have to ask you the one question which I ask all the guests on my show, which is, what is the one question you'd like answered about mental health above all others? Zach, what do you think? What's the one question you'd like answered? Well, it's actually not an area that I focus on, but given the impact that difficulties with mental health have in people's lives, I think if we knew how to prevent it, that if we had a comprehensive answer about what we could do and if those things were feasible and practical, that that would be the best thing to know because then we wouldn't have to do the work that I do trying to understand how to treat it if we could keep it from happening in the first place. Mark? The one question that I I would very much like to have answered about mental health um, is unfortunately not one that we can necessarily solve through scientific study, mm-hmm. which is why um, if we know mental health difficulty is such a problem, has such a degree of prevalence and um, creates such difficulties and challenges for individuals, communities and society, mm-hmm. why we completely fail to give a toss about it. In the period of time that led up to your diagnosis, what were you feeling, what were you experiencing? Over the last year I've kind of come to understand through therapy and counselling that actually I've sort of carried kind of quite a lot of trauma and the point at which um, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 was kind of maybe sort of two or three years after the death of my mother. At a sort of time of, of sort of great um, poverty and difficulty, I was kind of attempting to study at university. I was absolutely skint, um, and I was the world's worst student. At that point of great crisis, what you guys a sort of series of um, a sort of a sort of spiral, a sort of tightening of the opportunities and the possibilities that you have. So you try to do things to remedy your situation; they don't work. The spiral gets tighter and tighter and tighter, um, and then I was lucky enough to see a clinical psychologist and the clinical psychologist did something which was kind of very interesting. They said, um, yeah, you evidently read books. Um, See if you can get hold of um, any of Kay Redfield Jameson's books about um, manic depression or bipolar. Um, See if they speak to you and then we'll have a conversation about whether that might be what you're experiencing. We talked about it. Um, I tried... um, some medication at that point which was absolutely terrible for me absolutely the it was absolutely the worst course of action and then I kind of just kind of buggered along on my own for a number of of, of years actually you stopped taking the medication yeah um it, it wasn't appropriate it wasn't correct so then you had three or four years going on with your life and and dealing with your mental health difficulties what led you to go back and and get more treatment or ask for a different treatment so I got to a point in you know my life and I wasn't happy and things were very difficult and I thought actually now's the time 
to maybe seek an intervention, an addition to this situation, because I myself can't see the path through this on my own. So you went back to the clinician and you asked for another treatment. How was that for you? It may well have been the opportunity to access um, short-term therapy mm. via IAP that was afforded. Yeah. So actually went through a GP and said, I, you know, can you refer me to something without... Um, necessarily having to have a huge and complicated assessment. Yeah, so, sorry, just to explain to the listeners what IAPT is. Yeah, it, that's improving access to psychological therapies. Um, so IAPT works on the basis usually that people are allowed um, or have the opportunity to self-refer themselves to short courses of therapy and support. Yeah, so that's what you went for and then... Yeah, I think so, it would be about that time, yeah. Seen as we're talking about treatments today, I wondered, obviously you were given the treatment which didn't work for you, you had years without any treatment at all, and then finally you got a treatment that, which appears to have helped in some way at least. Um, what do you think could have been done to improve that process? Um, one of the things was, which was extremely useful and sort of redemptive in a sense for me was the sense of being cared for. And I think this is a very, very interesting thing that sometimes, for some people, what you most want at the time of distress is to be able to abdicate your responsibility, to be able to put your trust in someone to make a good decision for you. Other people go completely the opposite way and that the last thing they want in a situation of distress is for anyone to make some decisions for you. But there's, there's something about meeting a clinician who was ready to discuss the different options um, was different from being an informed patient and trying to prod the um, clinician into considering some of the options which I myself had previously read up about, which I think is really interesting for Zach's work, actually. Yeah, empowering the caregiver to have the evidence behind which treatments are going to work for which people, I guess. Which leads us really nicely onto onto your project, Zach. And you've been creating a personalised advantage index, which sounds very fancy. And it's basically um, an algorithm that takes a lot of data and predicts which treatment would work best for which people based on certain characteristics. Can you tell me how that would impact mental health and just explain a bit more about what the PAI is? Well, I think, Mark, your experience is exactly what we're trying to improve. The project that's specifically getting funded here um, is a tournament to try and build the best model, but also to increase our understanding of what works for whom in IAPT. Um, so we're going to be looking at, can we figure out for whom going directly to high intensity treatment, whatever that might be, is going to be really beneficial? And can we differentiate those people from the larger percentage of the population for whom low-intensity care will work? And so to the extent that we can do that, it'll keep people from having that experience that it sounds like you had of starting off in the wrong treatment, not feeling better, potentially even feeling worse, experiencing the loss of hope that comes along with that, and also just the time spent not yet feeling better. That's a that's a cost. Every year that you spend not flourishing and experiencing life in the way that you want to be experiencing it is a lost year. 
So whether it's getting more people better, getting them better more quickly, if we can do that and do it in the existing system. So our goal here is actually not to even have to change the system, but just to say, use the resources we currently have better, more efficiently. I think that'll be uh, a huge win in terms of mental health and well-being. So I, I, I'm kind of wondering, what, what stage are you at with this? So um, I've been working on this for over six years with a really dedicated team at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, my advisor is Rob DeRubis, and we have uh, collaborators around the world who deserve a ton of credit. Um, for the last six years or so, we've been trying to develop the statistical methods to predict things accurately and generating these predictive models using data from treatment studies. So for example, we took data from a study where half of the people got cognitive behavioral therapy, well, not exactly half, but people were either randomized to cognitive behavioral therapy or antidepressant medication. And these people all had depression. And we looked to say, what seems to predict that somebody's gonna do really well or not so well in cognitive therapy? And what seems to predict that they're gonna do really well or not so well with antidepressants? And if we can identify those factors and put them together in a model, we could say, okay, for you, because you've come in the door depressed and you've had two antidepressants before and because you also are experiencing difficulties with a predict that you'll either do better or worse in cognitive therapy. So we combine them in a model and then the output says, okay, based on that, it's really important that you get cognitive behavioral therapy. And then for another person who has a different unique constellation of individual features, that person might really need antidepressants. And what we found is that by doing that, we can get people on average the same amount better as the difference between antidepressants and placebos. And so our goal with this project is to try and do that for stepped care and to show that it works with a truly held out sample. So a lot of our work has been looking at existing data sets and there, you always wonder or you don't want to believe that it truly works until you show that it works somewhere else. And so that's that's going to be our goal for this project. How are you creating the IAPT algorithm and how are you testing it? One of the things that I'm most excited about for this work is that we have a large enough, enough sample that we can hold out thousands of people from the building process. And so all of the people who are going to try and be building these models are going to get about 4,500 individuals worth of data. And they can build and test their model within those people and try and build the best mo model they can. And then they'll submit that model and it will be tested on a held out or test or validation sample. And nobody will have access to those people. So we can't cheat, we can't know what's gonna work in them. And that way, if a model is built and works on this new set of people, we can be very confident that at least in that population, it's going to be a good, reliable model, and we can have a measure of how well we should expect it to work. Okay, so you're inviting lots of people in, and who are these people to create the algorithm? So as part of the last MQ grant that we got, we held a conference at the University of Pennsylvania called the Treatment Selection Idea Lab. 
and we were really excited to bring researchers and clinicians from around the world together to talk about building these models. And it was kind of a statistic-y weekend, but it also included implementation scientists, neuroimagers, geneticists. And what I realized when we had all those people in the room together was that so many of these groups are devoting years of their lives to building predictive models in mental health. We're all doing it differently. And I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, we didn't have any way to really answer that question because I might be working with a depression study and you might be working with a PTSD study and you might be working with an OCD study. And so we had no way to really learn from each other's methodology in a rigorous, structured fashion. So we invited a number of the groups who were at that tournament and we're also going to be bringing in other groups from around the world. And each of these groups is going to get the exact same data set and have the exact same outcome that they're trying to predict. And then we can look head to head who builds the best model. Tested on the data that's Held not out. being shown. But we can do more than that. So not only can we find the best model and then use that in IAPT to help improve outcomes, but we can also learn how did you do it? How did I do it? What about the decisions that I made during the model building process were helpful and what wasn't helpful? And that's not necessarily the sexiest thing. But if we learn more about how to build and test these models, then the next data set or the next situation that comes up, we can do it better. And so then we can start taking this approach. Whatever comes out of this tournament should be the state of the art. It's like if you had a bunch of surgeons, some of whom did open heart surgery and some of whom did orthoscopic surgery and everybody had a little bit of a different approach and you brought everybody together and you learned from each other what's the state of the art what's the best best approach to doing it i think that's the way to improve it what range of people's experiences are you looking at with this algorithm or this work and also also explain how algorithms work Um, because because they're very much the thing of the moment but they're Mm -hmm. a bit like sort of saying abracadabra everyone says well how's it going to work an algorithm. <laughs> what so, is an algorithm? Yeah. Wolfgang Lutz did an interesting study where he adapted a methodology, a prediction algorithm method, from Swiss avalanches. And so it's called nearest neighbor. And what they would do is they would take a whole bunch of different factors what the temperature was, how much sunlight was there, what's the depth of the snow, what's the density of the snow. How much snowfall has there been in the past month? And they put all those variables into a model. And then it says, okay, here's how likely you are to have an avalanche on this day. So that's called the statistical approach or the actuarial approach. And we're kind of doing the same thing with mental health. We're saying, let's look at which features predict what outcomes, and let's use that to try and guide treatment. I like to think of it as treatment selection or treatment recommendations because what we can do is we can take some of the guesswork out of that process that you described. So when somebody comes in, it's not just a clinician saying, "Hmm, in the past, people who had these features, I, I feel like I've seen somebody like this patient before, and when I gave them this treatment, they got better. So I'm gonna give them that treatment. There there may be some value to that but it's also a lot of guesswork. Going back to that kind of range of experiences, 
are, are we talking about things that are most appropriate for CBT and antidepressants, so like anxiety and depression, or are we talking about the um, statistically less common uh, mental health experiences as well? Is it, are you working in that area? So we've been fortunate to do this work where we try and predict which treatment people should get in a wide variety of contexts. So we've done it uh, in depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders. We're just actually starting our first project looking in bipolar disorder. And so the goal is to really try and understand treatment response in as many different contexts as possible. And then also to not just think about these things as, okay, this is a model for depression, this is a model for anxiety, this is a model for PTSD, but to say, can we be even more broad? And there's this notion now of what's called transdiagnostic research. And transdiagnostic means work that spans multiple diagnoses. So it's not just depression, it's not just obsessive compulsive disorder or panic. It's um, something like rumination. So thinking about things repetitively and being um, unable to stop thinking about things. That's something that goes on a lot in depression, but it also goes on in generalized anxiety disorder. And academia. And and (laughs) academia. And so if we can understand how people are going to respond to a variety of treatments more broadly than just depression and anxiety, then we could have a model that could be applicable to more things. So, so I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the kind of limits of, of data, um, <clears throat> and sort of thinking about it'll be amazing when you establish this this algorithm and test it, and and have something that really does present what appears to be very very useful guides and pointers towards treatment. What I was wondering is what absences from the data in your work have you been most frustrated by? Like what isn't in the data? So I'll answer this in a couple ways. The most frustrating thing so far, and it's understandable, but it's something that I hope we can change in the future, is that no two studies we've worked with, even when they're in the same disorder, have the same variables, which preempts us from testing a model that we've built in another sample. Because if my model relies on your history of antidepressant exposure and another data set that we have didn't collect anybody's antidepressant history, I don't know how well the model will work. So that's from a research standpoint, something I think we need to change is to make sure that when we do new studies, that they collect sufficient data to allow us to use the existing studies that people have spent a lot of time Patients have contributed big parts of their lives to. We've spent a lot of money. We need to do everything we can to allow us to make the most out of the existing data. The other answer to your question is in the existing data, they've done a great job across all the studies that we've looked at collecting symptom measures, clinical information. So, you know, what is it that people are struggling with and what other things might they also be struggling with? What we call comorbidity, having more than one disorder, that's that's a problem. A lot of people have collected stuff like family history, contextual things, are you married, are you employed, what was your level of education, history of illness, when did this disorder start, but what I think I wish we had more of are 
cognitive factors. So thinking styles or actual measures of, so for anxiety disorders, biased attention. Do people attend to threats more than the average person? Do they have difficulty disengaging with threats when they see them? I think that having factors like that that speak to what's going on in this disorder might tell us something about how people are going to respond to different treatments. The studies that we've used were all made to look at, does this treatment work as well or better than a comparison treatment? So they did a great job of characterizing how well it worked and who were the individuals that they were testing uh, the treatment with. And many of these studies also tried to look at how the treatment worked, but none of these studies were explicitly made to predict for whom they will work. And hopefully what our work can do over the next couple of years is identify of the things that were measured, which seem to be really useful. And then we can prioritize collecting those. They can point us to new targets. The whole idea for what we've been working on for the last six years came about in our lab because of a frustration with the existence of knowledge about, okay, this feature predicts that somebody's going to do better in that treatment, and this feature predicts that somebody's going to do better in that treatment. That knowledge has existed for decades, but there was no implementation of it, and there was no structure to communicate and translate that information in a way that would be useful. And so that's really what we've done. We're, we're not doing a great deal to generate unique new knowledge about the features that exist. People have been looking at that. We're doing some stuff to help with that. But the core of what we're trying to do in the immediate future is to take existing knowledge and implement it so that it can actually improve outcomes, so that it can be tangible and interpretable and actionable. So so that that, that makes me think, and, and I know it's probably a bit of a pain in the bum to ask, like how do you picture your research being used on a day-to-day -day basis? So the way that I see the result of this project being used is that we'll take existing data Everybody who's treated in IAPT has to tell the clinician a set list of things. Some of them are like gender and marital status and employment status. Others have to do with what symptoms they're experiencing. Some people may be experiencing more anxiety or more depression. And we take those existing data points that everybody gives you when you walk in the door. The clinician has those, puts them into a computer, and then the computer tells the clinician okay, here's how likely this person is based on those factors to get better in high-intensity treatment. Here's how likely they are to get better in low-intensity treatment. Guess what? For this person, it's going to be really important that they get high-intensity, and here's how important we think it is, and also here's why. So have it be meaningful to the people. We're going to suggest high-intensity for this person because their depression has been going on for four years and because they told us that they tried an antidepressant and it didn't work. Those are two factors that tell us, you know, low intensity probably isn't going to be enough for this person. So then the clinician has that knowledge. The clinician understands that the reasons for that recommendation and then can communicate it to the patient. So we want this to be a shared experience where it's not just a edict from up high that you're going to get this, you're going to get that where it's a collaborative process where people understand and can use 
the knowledge that we're giving them. So that's how I would see it six months after we're done with the, the project. That's my goal is to see it actually being used, improving people's lives. It's very exciting. It's exciting, actually. I, 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 I can see, certainly, I can see the utility of that very, very strongly. Um, I think the thing that, that really interests me is overcoming not the technical challenges, it's overcoming the human factors um, because people spend ages training to be medics and they love being medics and they tend to take a dim view often or sometimes of things that make them feel less like medics. So I think it was, it's, often, it's often human factors that prevent the implementation of technology, not technology factors. So I kind of think, I, I wonder how it will feel for clinicians, whether they will feel glad in some ways to have this additional guide to confirm or augment their conclusions, or whether they'll be like, yeah, I just feel like um, I'm on a call center now because I just, I just asked the questions and tapped them into the computer. Um, that that, that I, I, I would see would be the biggest barrier. That's certainly true. It's something that we'll study, I think, uh, an essential midway point between generating an algorithm and implementing it is understanding how to implement it. There's a whole branch called implementation science where they look at that. How do you get doctors to wash their hands after they see patients? Um, but what I will say is that clinicians know things about patients and how they're going to respond. So if we can instantiate that knowledge in tools that everybody has access to, I think that people will be willing to listen to that information. And I say that in large part because... The things that have been identified as predictive features have, for the most part, been really easy to understand. It's not like you know, shirt color and hair length is predicting whether you should get an antidepressant or cognitive therapy. What's, what's most exciting to you about this? Like, like, what is it that really, really kind of charges your blood about this work? I'm more excited about this work than I've ever been. And it's for a very simple reason. I think with this project, we can actually build something in terms of a prediction model that can help people. I don't think that the work that we've done to this point on, on this project has impacted treatment yet. And I think that's the goal for most people who do this, is to actually improve people's lives. What excites me more than anything about this project is I really believe that at the end of it, it's going to have a real impact and that it's going to actually be used to help people. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me both today. Um, and thank you to all the listeners listening to MQ's Open Mind. If you've been affected by the content of this podcast and would like to talk to someone about mental health, you can call the Samaritans on 116 123 24 Thank you very much.